you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Alana Kushner. And you do lots of things. So instead of me listing them, I'd like you to tell me sort of what it is that you do. Oh my gosh. So, so, you know, it usually changes slightly depending who on who, who I am talking to. So for you, I might say I'm an art lawyer and a curator. And within those two types of roles, I, I do a number of different things. So curating can be anything from organising exhibitions to writing texts relating to arts and curating to working with artists in other ways, working on research projects as well. On the art lawyer side, I run a, a, a fully-fledged legal practice here in, in Melbourne, Australia, and I specialise in legal issues relating to art. And so that can be quite a broad range of things. So in a way, I'm a generalist, but also a specialist in that it always is related to art or creative practice in some sense. So I mainly work with artists, galleries, museums, and the like. Do a bit of lecturing on the side, again, in sort of art, law, curating. So everything sort of, you know, that, that it speaks to each other. It's all sort of part of the same sphere. But day to day, what I work on can can change somewhat. Oh, yeah. You've got some great titles. I mean, you have art lawyer, advisor, curator, investigator, lecturer. <laughs> so, like, you've got great stuff going on. I, I thoroughly love your titles. Some of them I've chosen. Others have been bestowed on me. <laughs> sort of like, like the investigator title. It's not something that... Uh, <laughs> Naturally, I would have naturally, you know, considered for myself. But you know, I'm, ha I'm happy to wear that hat too. Well, not just investigator, but principal investigator. That's right. That's right. I'm the main investigator. I'm the main investigator for for this research project, which is part of the Serpentine, which is a public art institution in London. So that that's very much a kind of a research research type of a role. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. But first, I want to know a little bit about sort of. How did you, you know, basically the question is like, how did you get made? So what, what in your sort of youth or childhood led you down the path of curating and art law and all these other things that you're now doing? Well, you know, art has always been a part of my life in some way, shape or form. I grew up painting, drawing. I had a very hardcore Russian art teachers from the age of five. So I was really trained to, you know, you know, uh, to to be able to to draw and to paint from life. I learned by copying, you know, old master paintings and impressionist paintings, and that was sort of my my upbringing with art. And yeah, it's always it's always been a part of me. I didn't choose to be an artist, though, when it came to deciding what I wanted to do after school. But, uh, yeah, it's always, I've always, there's always been something related to art in everything I do. Well, I, first thing I really want to know about is this principal investigator of Serpentine Gallery R&D platform called Legal Lab. What is it? What are you doing with it? It sounds fascinating. Sure. Well, so the Serpentine is one of the oldest contemporary art institutions based in London, but they do a lot of work internationally. 
And I should say that I did a bit of a London stint where sort of about now, almost 10 years ago, a bit scary to think about, 10 to yeah, 8 to 10 years ago where I did my curating master's there at Goldsmith. So I met a lot of people there at the time, built really great networks. And so this Serpentine project has come out of that, even though now I am based in Australia. And so uh, Serpentine. So yes, Serpentine has always been very interested in how artists work with technology, how artists sort of use art to look at technology with with more of a critical eye. And they set up a digital art program about a decade or so ago. So they started off by commissioning artists to create works which specifically lived on their website. And then that expanded into other sort of projects that were heavily influenced or created using new forms of technology. So it could be like augmented reality or virtual reality or projects on the blockchain, projects using using data, things like that. And so what they found as an institution in working with these kind of projects is that they were facing kind of questions and challenges that they were not necessarily facing when it came to, you know, working with a traditional art object like a painting or a sculpture, for example. And so they really wanted to look at the sort of the back end of these types of projects. And so this R&D platform, research and development platform, is really designed to sort of peel back the curtain and see what's actually working with these projects and not working, how they actually come together and how we might actually improve the way in which artists work with the institution when when they're working on these kinds of arts and tech tech projects. So they've set up different labs, which is very much in the style of Hans Ulrich Obrist. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's the artistic director of the Serpentine. And he's been using this sort of lab format for a lot of his curatorial projects for many years now. And so they've set up different labs to investigate these various challenges that they're facing with art and technology projects. So there's a creative AI or artificial intelligence lab, there's a blockchain lab, there's a life sciences lab, and there's a legal lab. Yes, so one of the issues that tends to come up in a lot of art and tech projects is around the law and how the law applies to the project and how to navigate the law or navigate through, you know, legal issues when working on projects such as this. So so that's a kind of a background to why the lab exists. So, for example, you know, a, a project that research project that we've been working on as part of the lab for the last year or two is specifically looking at collaborations and collaborative practice and when artists collaborate with others from other disciplines. So, for example, an artist who works with a technologist or an artist who works with a scientist, what sort of legal challenges do they face when they collaborate? Do they use contracts? Do they use MOUs? Do they know the difference between a contract and an MOU? You know, who owns what? Who has the right to what? All of those sorts of questions. So it's about kind of trying to unearth what those questions are And then, of course, the next phase will be in trying to create pathways that will allow us to, you know, improve the way these relationships work down the track. 
okay, I have all of those same questions for you because now that you've brought them up, what is the difference between a contract and a memorandum of understanding? Okay, well, I mean, I should preface, you know, my answer by saying, of course, you know, I'm not providing legal advice. And if anyone needs legal advice, they should, you know, speak to a lawyer who can assist them with their specific query. You know, there's definitely no one size fits all when it comes to legal issues. So I think that's always important to keep in mind. And of course, the law is also very jurisdiction specific. So the difference between a contract and an MOU from the perspective of Australian law might be slightly different to the difference between an MOU and a contract under US law or European law, for example. But in general, a contract, what is a contract? A contract is a legally binding agreement between two or more parties. So what that means is that essentially, you know, what it means to be legally binding is that a court of law can enforce that contract, can enforce your rights under that contract. So that's essentially what a contract is. An MOU or otherwise an MOU is short form for Memorandum of Understanding, it tends to be used when people are more in a kind of preliminary discussions for a project. So they might not have completely finalised all the various aspects of how they're going to work together or what they're going to do together, but they want to, in principle, agree to certain aspects of their arrangement. So they might sign what's called an MOU. Whether that's enforceable in a court of law, there's a kind of a question mark there. You really have to look at the intentions of the people who are signing this MOU. What we've found through the research with the legal lab is that Often in art projects, in collaborative art projects, MOUs tend to be signed or kind of contracts that are not necessarily going to be enforceable in a court of law. So they might not have the weight of the law to support them. And I think there are various reasons for that. But yes, there is a tendency to rely on MOUs in the art world. Uh, I don't generally use either, but that's because I can't afford lawyers. <laughs> I should say, I should say also on that in the art world, you know, there is still a tendency to rely on, you know, what we call handshake agreements when nothing is in writing. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that that contract hasn't been formed there. It doesn't have to be a contract. And it, most types of contracts, not, not all, but most types of arrangements don't have to be in writing in order to be enforced in the court of law. So an important exception to that actually is like copyright assignment. When you want to transfer your copyright to someone else, at least here in Australia, you have to do it in writing and it has to be signed. Or if you, for example, buy a piece of property, that also has to be in writing and signed. But generally speaking, though, it doesn't actually have to be in writing. Of course, you know, the benefits of putting something in writing is that it makes it easy to enforce because you can show that this is what's been agreed to. But, but <laughs> in the art world, you know, a lot of the art world is based on trust. You know, it's based on relationships and trust is, is sort of seen as the, the foundation on which relationships are built. So from your perspective then, who do you believe should be using and how often? Like, Should we always be using contracts or does that sort of diminish that sort of trust that's built when we have to have legal documents involved in, in art practices? I mean, what I always like to say is that I find contracts when they're in writing can be a really useful tool, a really useful instrument that 
you know, when you're writing a contract, whether you're a lawyer or not, it really forces you to think about, well, what, what am I doing here? What do I want out of this arrangement? What don't I want to happen out of this arrangement? So it forces the parties to come together and really nut out exactly what their arrangement will be and the conditions of that arrangement. So in that way, it's a really useful tool to really come to a point of consensus. And that's a great place to start when you're collaborating with someone or, you know, working with someone in, in some way, shape or form. I mean, of course, that said, you don't need a contract for everything. You know, when when I go and buy a coffee from a cafe, there's a, there's a contract being formed there. So I'm I'm ordering a coffee and, or I should say, the cafe's making, giving me an offer, offering to to sell me the coffee. The coffee. I'm accepting that offer and I'm accepting it by handing over, you know, my money or my, you know, my card for them to deduct the, the fee. But so there's consideration there. You've got the money that's being exchanged for the coffee. So, you know, in that scenario, you've got a legally enforceable contract, but you don't need to have it in writing, you know. So I think you always have to kind of make, you have to you have to make a judgment as to, where you know what benefits could be gained from having it in writing and having it being legally enforceable it's a question of risk you know it's not necessarily a right or a wrong it's always a question of risk so how risky would it be if i didn't put it in writing versus if i did but like i've had issues where in the past where i wanted everything in contract in writing and people were almost offended by it to the point that we ended up not doing business together. Yeah, I've definitely heard of those kind of scenarios in art world before, especially from gallerists who would say, oh, sorry, I don't do contracts. And I'm sorry, but you don't do contracts until something really bad happens. And then then that's when they sort of that's when that's when they might change their minds. You know, when when you do see these issues come up day to day, I think you you do become more aware of how important it is to get these things as right as you can from the start. It's hard when to see to see how bad things can get until you get into that situation. But I do uh, know yeah. I've been taken yeah. to court about some things. Oh, and what have you taken been talking, to taken court. to court about? Uh, the rights to a name of a company. Uh, I had a partner, and that partner thought that I was not running it well, and he thought I, that he could run it better, and so he wanted the rights to default to him. Mm-hmm. In and the end, I just work? gave. I, oh, I just <laughs> gave it to him. I didn't care. I, yeah. It's you know, the, it, part of the legal issues that I run into is like it's you know how much do you care? Because <laughs> you know, if yeah. if you don't care that much and it's not that important to you, oftentimes going down the legal route, I feel like is just a fruitless thing. Because I mean, if I had gone through all that effort and then I won it, I, it wouldn't have mattered to me. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. I mean, that that legal route is a very hard route to take. It's never an easy route to take. It's hard on many levels, financial, emotional. The stress is is very, very hard. I don't do a little a lot of litigation work actually. I usually find that in in this area of work, there's not a lot that actually ends up in court just because of how expensive it is. It's a rich man's game going to court. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sort of, you know, try to 
avoid the law altogether or not try to use it to your advantage or not try to, you know, again, like try to draft a contract that's going to be a benefit to you. All right. Well, one of my big questions that I always have when it comes to the law is what basically like what are the things that are the most important for people in the arts to be aware of that more or less we're not aware of? The most important. Mm, it's hard to pinpoint it into one. <laughs> no, it can be, it can be a couple things. A that's couple fine. Of- <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, contract law, yeah. some some amount of intellectual property stuff, some yeah. amount of copyright stuff. I mean, I'm aware that these are the big problems because a lot of us in the arts we got into the arts because we don't want to deal with this kind of stuff mm. but because we're in the arts these are the things we have to deal with so it's it's these business-minded things that are the hardest for us to often do mm. I, yeah i mean from my experience it's a combination of contract and intellectual property primarily but then again it depends on the nature of the artwork and who's involved it could really be any area of law that's brought up by a scenario when it comes to art law you know, on the, comp- on, the, on the copyright side of things, and I really see it now day to day, you know, I've been sort of, as many art lawyers have in the last few months, like getting more sort of involved in the NFT space and advising on NFTs. And, you know, there are huge, huge copyright issues that are only now starting to be grappled with. So these questions around ownership, of IP, they're made, they're a big, big issue. And not just with NFTs, but all forms of new technology. And, you know, it comes back to, and, and that's why I think this, the, the Serpentine Legal Lab project is so important because, when, you know, more often than not now, artists are collaborating with others when they're creating new work or they're creating new work and using some form of existing content in that work. So there are always, always copyright issues that need to be thought through when you're doing any of those things. So that, for me, I would say is probably the most pressing issue that I think needs, still needs a lot of, I'm, I, I, you know, I feel like there's a real, unfortunately, a, a real lack of knowledge amongst artists as to what copyright really is, what it protects and whether it protects a work of art or not well here you are so please do tell (laughs) what does it protect so again you know what copyright protects varies somewhat from jurisdiction to jurisdiction we do have like international conventions which have unified copyright law somewhat but when it comes down to the details then you really do have to look at you know for example i would be looking at the the copyright acts in in australia and what that says copyright protects because it will tell me exactly what copyright protects so in australia for example for your work to be protected by copyright it has to fall within one of the there are categories of subject matter so these categories include like painting drawing photography prints it covers moving image, it covers sculpture, but it doesn't say things like, it doesn't include words like installation or AI art or performance art. It doesn't include any of those sorts of things that, you know, are very much part of the kind of, you know, contemporary understanding of what art is and what art can be. Just to be clear, 
copyright in in Australia slash your international understanding is automatically given. So you know, like the once you make a painting, it's inherent into it. Or do you have to create some legal filing or something with a government to in order to have that copyright on that image? So in Australia, and here's probably the point of difference between the US and jurisdictions like Australia and the UK. So you know, the Australian copyright laws are very much influenced by the come out of UK copyright law, essentially. You don't need to register your copyright here. So it's something that automatically appears once you, you know, tick certain boxes. So one of those boxes is that it falls within a certain certain form of recognised subject matter under the copyright legislation. Another is that it's in a material form. And that's why actually there are all sorts of problems around performance art because, you know, the general consensus, at least from the perspective of copyright law, is that it's ephemeral in nature. It's not in material form because it can't be inherently, I guess, reproduced or exactly reproduced. And so, you know, it's, it's whether performance art is actually protected by copyright law here is a question mark. I mean, often I hear artists say, well, or, uh, you know, if I ask an artist, well, who owns the copyright? An artist might say, well, it's me because I'm the artist. And that's not necessarily the case in the eyes of copyright law. So copyright law will say the, the copyright author, the first author, the holder of the copyright is the person who puts the work in material form. So that could mean, for example, the person who's pressing the button on the camera, not necessarily the person who's being depicted in the image, but the person who's pressing a button on the camera or, you know, recording the film or using the paintbrush. Someone else might have the idea or the concept, but it's really the person who puts it in material form that's considered to be the first author. What about the idea that maybe some artworks might be commissioned or or privately funded or even governmentally funded? Do the copyrights go to the funder in some cases? The primary principle is that the person who puts it in material form is the first author, but that's where also the contract between the commissioner and the creator, the artist, becomes really important because you can use the contract to actually say that as at, you know, the date of this contract, copyright will transfer from the author, from the creator, to the commissioner. But you actually need to spell that out. Again, like that that's getting quite into specifics. So I know like in America, for example, my understanding is that when it comes to these kind of at least work for hire type scenarios, then 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 the law might recognise that the first owner of the copyright is actually the commissioner, but that's not the case here. So again, with like employment scenarios, usually it's the employer that is considered to be the first owner. But then, you know, there are sorts of, you know, when it comes to the law, and I guess what I find quite interesting about the law is that's all sort of exceptions to exceptions to exceptions and you know, you're always ending up with different possible scenarios. So here, even though the general principle is that the first copyright owner or the author is the creator, in a commissioning scenario where you're commissioning, not just generally, but 
where you're commissioning a, a, a portrait, like for a personal or private or family portrait, or let's say you're commissioning wedding photos, in that case, the copyright legislation here specifically says that the first owner is, you know, the wedding couple, for example, the person who's commissioning it. So there's all sorts of really small kind of exceptions to exceptions, which could apply to an artist when they're creating work. I also know that you worked with a fashion festival. So what about like model releases? You know, model releases are kind of a different species altogether. And I mean, essentially what they are is they are a type of an agreement. They are a type of contract between the the person that's being, you know, photographed, filmed, and, uh, you know, whoever's commissioning that work. And essentially a model release is designed to protect the commissioner and it is designed to protect the commissioner by saying that, you know, this, this person that's being depicted, they're not going to, you know, come back in five or ten years when whatever work it is that's been created has made a lot of money. They're not going to come back and claim that they're entitled to some sort of royalty from that, for example. So that's the idea behind a model release. It's kind of an agreement that you're not going to enforce any potential rights you might have against the other person in, in the future. So it could be, I'm not sure if it really is even related to copyright, if I think about it. It's probably more just like a pure, purely contractual type of a tool. Does that answer your question? It does, but I've got a question that is very more towards copyright in general is the term appropriation. <laughs> uh, there's been a long-standing debate about what it is, how extensive something needs to be to even be, you know, a concern. So like what's the current state of sort of the the legal aspect of appropriation? It depends on where you are and where the infringing act has occurred. <laughs> so really that's that's the best answer I could give you because it the way in which courts have interpreted, you know, whether appropriation is considered a kind of a legitimate form of infringement that has actually that that differs depending where in the world you are and where in the world that 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 act of appropriation has taken place in the US i would say it's probably the most one of the most broad and you might have heard of you know the richard prince case and of course there's a number of jeff, jeff coons cases that have been heard in the US and which have focused on this question of appropriation the reason it's broader in the US and the reason in some of these cases the you know the Coons or Richard Prince they've come out as the the, the successful ones you know where where appreciation was I guess legitimized by by the courts is again it comes down to the, the specific wording that's in the the US Copyright Act when it comes to exceptions to copyright so there they have what's called fair use here it's actually called fair dealing. It's similar. So it's a kind of an exception to copyright infringement based on fairness. But in the US, the, the courts are slightly more at liberty to interpret what's considered fair. So there are some kind of indicating factors in the legislation as to what would be considered fair. But, but there is a little bit more leeway than courts would have here. Here, the categories for exceptions to 
copyright infringement are much narrower. So here, for example, you've got these categories of, for example, it must be for the purpose of research or study, reporting the news, criticism or review. So, you know, there's been questions of, well, is appropriation a form of criticism or review? There's also here a category of um, parody or satire, but it must fall within one of these categories in order for the law to, or copyright law to consider it to be an exception to copyright infringement. I mean, I've heard also, even up until today, you know, I've heard these questions around, you know, how much can you take? How much is too much? And often, you know, I'll hear people say, oh, I've heard of the 10% rule, or the 20% rule. And, you know, at least in Australia, and I think in the UK, it's the same, probably even in the US, it's slightly similar in that it's not so much about the quantity that's taken, it's the quality of what's taken. So if you take something that looks like a very small piece of what it's then inserted into, if it's still a substantial amount of what's been taken, it could still be considered a form of copyright infringement. I've heard the term um, distinct art artistic difference is the sort of legal term that I've heard has been debated on. That's interesting. I haven't actually heard that term. Distinct artistic difference. Yeah, basically like the that the new artwork that is is appropriating from another artwork has a distinct artistic difference from the original. Yeah, so I mean this is very this is a very kind of US transformativity argument. So again, it's like I am from the US, so yeah. Yeah, so there you go. So but yeah, but that's like that's the kind of argument you could only ever even try to make in a US court. Because so, you know, in addition to these kind of exceptions for you know research or study for example they have developed through their courts these precedents for something that's transformative and it's transformative because it you know changes the meaning or purpose or gives a i should say it gives a new meaning or new purpose in the way in which it's then in the way in which it's reused but like that is something that we haven't really had to consider here because courts just haven't gone anywhere near as far as they have here as they have in the US when it comes to appropriation. So yeah, so look, here at least in the eyes of the law and the eyes of copyright law, appropriation is pretty much almost always a no-no <laughs> and that it's probably not going to be considered a form of copyright or an exception, I should say an exception to copyright infringement. So even though art history might say, well, this is okay because so-and-so did it and so-and-so did it and so-and-so did it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will be considered okay in the eyes of the law, unfortunately. All right, well, let's take it back a step, though. There's still the term intellectual property. I, I've run into this numerous times throughout my career because I've also moved a lot. So I've been in the United States, I've been in the Middle East, I've been in Europe now. And the term intellectual property has different characteristics, but it also, when it transcends jurisdictions, it also sort of changes as well. So what defines something as intellectual property? Like how can you quantify it in some way? And I guess maybe even give a, a definition of it for that matter. Yeah, well, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd actually think, I'd, I'd use property as a starting point. So if you think of like tangible property, so let's say, you know, I'm holding my phone, this is a piece of tangible property, something it can touch. And the principle with or tangible pro or what we, what we call personal property, the principle behind personal property is that, you know, I own this and because I own it, I can do with it what I want. 
if I want to throw it on the floor and break it, I can do that. If I want to, you know, use it in any way, shape or form, I can do that because it's mine, because it's my personal property. And it also means that I can enjoy it to the exclusion of anyone else. So that's personal property. Intellectual property is an intangible property. So it's not something you can touch. And it's not something that you can possess to the exclusion of anyone else. So think of, for example, a photograph of a phone, right? You could have that photograph of the phone. And at the same time, I, on the other side of the world, can have an exact copy of that photograph and enjoy that photograph as much as you do. And so that's why you have this other form of essentially intangible property law that has developed. It's also, you know, and, and, and it sort of look, you know, it depends. There are different, I guess, theories around how intellectual property has developed. And that's, you know, in, in Europe, the, the theories around intellectual property are very different from common law jurisdictions like the UK, the US and Australia. In Australia, and the US and the UK, you know, it's very much, it's an economic, it's an economic theory behind intellectual property and the protection of intellectual property. The idea is, you know, if you're creating something, you need to have protection over that creation. And if you don't have protection over that creation, and if you can't exploit that creation in a commercial way, then you're not going to create. So from what you just said, what I'm, what pops in my head, so let's say there's an image, we'll take uh, the Eiffel Tower, as an example. So let's say a photographer takes a very unique image of the Eiffel Tower, photographer A, let's call them. Mm-hmm. Let's say photographer B then sees that photograph and decides on their own to then go and take basically the exact same photograph. And then they, photographer B is able to then sell it and make money. Is that any form of intellectual property theft or stealing? Yeah, so here... In Australia, at least, we would say, well, there's no actual copying of the image. There's a copying of the idea, but not the image itself. Well, and, and that's the subtle difference that I'm trying to figure out between intellectual property and ideas. Exactly. So intellectual property, or I should say specifically, well, actually, no, or, no, well, not intellectual property in general, but copyright, at least. Copyright does not protect ideas. It only protects the expression of the idea when it you know, when it becomes something in this material form. Patents, for example, you know, pa- patent law is designed to protect invention, so it's more closely aligned with this idea of protecting ideas. But in, in general, it's about protecting the way in which it's been expressed, not the idea itself, not the concept. And, you know, that, that poses quite a conundrum when it comes to a lot of contemporary art, which is, which, you know, a lot of contemporary art is, conceptually oriented a lot of contemporary art is about the the value lies on the idea not in the way it's expressed but at the same time and so what the phrase for that in copyright law is the idea expression dichotomy but that's a really important element as well to think about Well, what actually has been copied is it the idea or the expression of the idea you can protect Copyright law protects the expression. So when it's actually on paper or in a photograph, and I should say in digital form, that's still considered to be a form of expression, a material form, because you can still reproduce something from that digital form. But it's very different to, to, to yeah, the idea of taking a photo of the Eiffel Tower. 
Well, what about, okay, so let's say there's an artist, for some reason, I don't know why I'm thinking of Joe's boys, but let's, so let's say there's a contemporary artist who is a huge admirer of Joseph Boys, and they make a series of work using the same ideas as Joseph Boys, and maybe even the same materials or the same stuff, but add something additional, something contemporary. I mean, is that intellectual property theft? Is that so you're saying, like, for example, if I went and if I went to my fridge and I took like a, a glob of butter and I put it in like the corner of a wall, like I know voice is done probably in a much more like sophisticated way. But if I did that. Well, oddly enough, what I was thinking was if I made a brand new oversized felt suit, that, yeah, that's what right. I was thinking. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I should say, you know, I think that's a good analogy because that idea expression dichotomy it's not always very clear and that's why you know it really depends on the facts but so you know I'd have to ask you well how did you come up with that suit did you you know did you have an image of the original Joseph Boy's suit and you then copied the image or did you have the idea of a felt suit in your head and you just created it based on the idea of a felt suit well, well, it's an interesting dilemma because like a lot of artists go to art school and we see so much in the world through our art history books and our classes and all this stuff that we don't remember everything we saw. I mean, exactly. I had the circumstance where I, uh, near the end of my undergraduate, I started making this work because I sort of figured out this technique, this idea that, or, or I should be clear, this technique. And then I put an idea to it and I was like, oh, this is really great. It's very unique. It's new and, and I've never seen it before. And then I showed it to my art history professor and he was like, oh yeah, Robert Heineken did that in the 1960s. Mm. Like, fuck, because <laughs> I thought I'd come up with it like all on my own, but in reality, I had already seen it in an art history course. Yeah. I just was unaware that that it was the same technique. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know that that that's the thing with art. You know, nothing's made in a vacuum, you know, and no ideas in general, you know, are made in a vacuum, or the way in which they express are made in a vacuum. So, you know, like sometimes the the kind of ideals that the law has are not necessarily re reflective of the way in which you know, creative practice evolves over time. Like the law always plays patch up with creative practice. But it, but it does seem to be particularly slow when it comes to copyright and appropriation. And we see that especially, you know, recently, you know, in the US, there's been a couple of these fair use cases, one involving an Andy Warhol work where he had taken a photograph of prints. And so there's, there's just very recently in the last few weeks, I hunted down a, a judgment in relation to that. So, you know, it's very much a kind of a live issue when it comes to law, even though, you know, in a way, a lot of these kind of questions around appropriation, they're, they're not really disputed now when it comes to art and that are given. There is, you know, it's, it's part of the history. It's part of the way of making art. I just, you know, it's to a certain extent, I wish the law could be kept out of it. Like, why didn't Andy Warhol just contact <laughs> Prince and say, hey, can I do a picture of you? And like, if he just said, yeah, sure, it would have been done. Well, that's what I often say. I'm like, you know, sometimes maybe you can just try and ask for permission. I know sometimes it can look like it's a really hard thing to do. But, you know, sometimes actually, you know, you, you might find that the other person is quite flattered that you even want to use their material. They might try to charge you a license fee for doing that too. They're smart enough, but you know, at the, at the end of the day, like I think you know, people are flattered by it. 
Oh, I did. When I was in graduate program, I actually wanted to use a, a line from Tom Robbins' uh, Skinny Legs and All book. And I actually wrote to Tom Robbins and I said, hey, could I give you permission to use this in my artwork? And he, and he wrote back and signed it and he said, go for it. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, see, there really, you go. He was all for it. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it does happen. But a lot of people these days are very difficult to reach, you know, pub publicists and all kinds of people that get in the way that it's very difficult to directly contact them. So that's a different contemporary issue completely. Mm. All right. Something that I noticed that I, I'm always fascinated with, I'm getting older. My parents have a, a, a small art collection and I'm starting to wonder about like legacy planning. What's your a sort of input on like what should artists who are alive and cohesive or not uh, are, are coherent <laughs> do in order to assist in their legacy planning after their death? Well, I think the first thing that an artist should do is acknowledge that they're going to die. <laughs> that sounds, I, think, I think that's the first step. No, we're Peter Pan, <laughs> we will always be young. Some people just don't want to even go there. Don't even want to think about it. You know, they just want to think about making art now and selling art now. <laughs> but, you know, everyone's going to die. So the more comfortable you can get with that and think about what happens later on, the better. So, like, it's good to hear that you're, you're, you're thinking about your parents' art collection now. Once you've gotten over that first hurdle, I think, you know, in very practical terms, you've got to think of, you know, what do you actually have and where, where what do you want to, to become? of what you have. And in terms of what you have, I think as an artist, it's always remember important to remember that unlike, you know, many other people out there, you don't just have physical objects, you know, these kind of physical assets or, you know, fine, you know, money. You also have your copyright. Uh, you have and, and copyright generally lasts for around, again, depends on the jurisdiction. Here in Australia, it's 70 years after the death of the author. If it's like a painting, for example, or a sculpture or a photograph, it changes depending on the medium here, actually, so it can get quite confusing. But in, in the US, for example, it's 70 years. Okay, wait, I have a question about that specifically. Okay, yes. so let's say, because like I'm picturing somebody that's listening to this has a relative who has been dead for 69 years. <laughs> what has to happen to continue to keep that copyright after that 70 years? You can't. It goes and it, it that's at that point it expires and the work the cop the copyright becomes part of the public domain which means that anybody can use that material and copyright terms have been extended over time so I know that like and this is probably more relevant in the music realm like there were quite influential musicians at times that sort of lobbied to have that copyright term extended so I think the Beatles were quite involved in that some of the Beatles were as well but you know 70 years or 75 years after your death it's still a pretty long time and it's a great opportunity for your pendants or whoever's going to be your beneficiaries to I guess live like quite literally live off off the fruits of your labor 
Okay, but wait, wait, hold on. Let's get even more pedantic about this okay. because okay. You, because earlier you talked about like working with collaborators and people who collaborate yes. and stuff, and then of course you brought up the Beatles as well. Yes. So this 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 dying plus seventy years is that dying plus seventy years of the last person to die in the collaboration <laughs> or the first person to die in the collaboration? That's a, that's a very specific question. Let me think about that. It depends on you know. <laughs> This is where it gets really complicated because it depends on whether, for copyright law's sake, you're really considered joint authors, so you really jointly own the copyright, or you each have ownership over different layers of copyright in the work. So music is a good example of that, where you have different layers of copyright protection. So you have copyright will protect, for example, the lyrics. Copyright will protect separately the musical score. And then separate to that, it would protect the recording. And you can have different people or different companies or different entities that own those layers of copyright. So I think, you know, even if you think of like the Beatles, when they'd have, you know, when you'd see a, a score, it'd say that, it's, you know, lyrics by, you know, John Lennon, for example. So, you know, so, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, what the copyright division is between those, or at least I don't. But... <laughs> you really need to look at the specific facts in those scenarios. So it's very hard to kind of say, okay, yes, if you've collaborated, then you jointly own everything. It's not necessarily the case. Again, contract becomes a really great tool. And, you know, when you're entering into these collaboration contracts, you should think about, you know, the long term, not just of the project, but of, of you and your collaborators. What's going to happen after the collaboration ends? Who's going to be entitled to what? But, you know, on, back on, on the, the kind of estate planning question, you know, I would say that when it comes to copyright, you should really think about addressing copyright in your will, which is not something that, you know, somebody who's, you know, not an artist, not creating things that are protected by copyright would generally need to do. But it, as an artist, it is something you should absolutely do. And you should really think about who you're going to, you know, who's going to be the beneficiary of, you know, any of your copyright royalties. What else can we do as living artists to try to be prepared for sort of that that continuation of our legacy after our death? Well, I mean, it's not so much of a legal consideration. I'd say it's more of a practical consideration. It's, you know, keeping a really good inventory of your work would probably be good a, a good idea. And, you know... Uh, Look, I've worked with all sorts of artists and some are really meticulous and great at that and completely control it. Others really, you know, they're just riding the wave of, you know, being in a great place in their career and they don't have time to keep track of all those things. But, you know, as with most sort of, you know, cataloging projects, it becomes much harder to do that down the track. So, you know, keeping a really accurate in inventory of your, you know, stock, keeping you know track of you know who you know where a work is consigned who owns what all of that is really really useful i mean at the end of the day you've got to think of that point at which you're no longer there how are people going to be able to sort of pick up the pieces and know what to do so you need to make it easier for them I'm always wondering because when I was younger, I used to like give gifts of artwork to people yeah. because, of course, I was poor and I didn't have yeah. money, but I started to give Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and stuff. So I give art, but I never kept any records. Like I have, I know <laughs> I gave away like hundreds of small pieces over the course of my career, but I have absolutely no recollection of what I gave or who I gave them to. 
Yeah. So, you know, what's, what's going to happen when you're gone and someone wants to, you know, I don't know, sell one of your works at auction, you know, are they, is it going to be a certificate of authenticity? Is there, you know, what's the provenance of the work? You know, is someone going to then dispute who's going to be looking after your estate? Are they, are they going to be able to, are they, are they going to want to give, uh, what do you call authorization of, of copyright for, you know, the auction house to reproduce the image in their catalogue? You know, all these sorts of things. So oh, I know. It doesn't yeah. make it easy. It doesn't, you're not making it easy. Okay, but you brought up one of my favorite topics because I'm always fascinated by this because certificates of authenticity. Yeah. When I was young, I was told to do them. I didn't do them. Now that I'm older, I'm overly obsessed with them because I, I was living in the Middle East and they were obsessed with certificates of authenticity really? there. Oh my gosh. And so I'm sort of wondering, like, from a legal standpoint, what makes a certificate of authenticity legal versus not legal? Like, what, what characteristics should be in them? Mm. It's, you know, a, a certificate of authenticity, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of a receipt. So if you go to a shop and you buy something and they give you the receipt, the receipt acts as a form of proof that that transaction has occurred. So you could think of a certificate of authenticity in in that way, and that it's proof of you know uh, that, that that there is this artwork and that it's authored by this person. But you know, even to this day, like a lot of certificates of authenticity, it's just you know a piece of paper with a signature. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how long that piece of paper is going to last, or you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard to I'm obsessive. Like I what I do is I I have written out all the technical details of the creation of you know, paper, inks, like everything, you know, paints, everything I can put in there. Yeah. I list for them. I also put do uh, hologram non Ooh. like uh, theft stickers with matching numbers. And I put the one on the piece of the art and one on the certificate of authenticity to guarantee that these two objects are meant to be together. Well, that's great. I don't. I must say, I don't see much of that happening here. <laughs> so, I'm, you can I'm do that. That a is new great. Trend. Starting a new that is trend. Great. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's where you get all into kind of like looking at how you know what kind of technology can you use to kind of support that. So I don't know if you know. I think look, it is important to think about yeah, what's going to last in the future, what's not going to last in the future, and you know, really, really, yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> kind of again we get back to the you know acknowledge that you're not going to be here one day and you know put, put your offspring in the best position to enjoy the time after you're gone oh well especially during these days of covid i mean i've i've had two deaths in my family this mm. year so like lots of people are having these kinds of mortality thoughts with the sheer volume of death that's going on yeah in the world these i'm days. so sorry to hear that that's really hard. I mean, here we've been very lucky. Well, um, yeah, very, very oddly lucky, enough, so. neither of my family deaths had to do with COVID. It oh, just really? Happened be, yeah, okay. it just literally was like just deaths, uh, yeah. nothing to do with COVID, but yeah. happened to happen at the same time as COVID. Yeah. That's all. Well, still, it's a very like I, I think like you like like you're alluding to. There's just a, a there's a it's a time of loss at the moment. But uh, yeah, I think. You know, even if you're not directly impacted by COVID anyway, it is still, you know, important to think about what what will happen in the future. All right. Perfect segue. So talking about things that are happening in the future, you brought them up. I didn't ask about them, but I'm going to ask about them now, which is NFTs. Sure. 
I, I'll be honest. Okay, here, I'll give you my little two cents on it. I think it's money laundering scam. I don't think it has any merit whatsoever. I think it's just a, a fad and a money laundering scam. What, what's your legal perspective on it? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Well, also, but underlying that, what yeah. what are the legal issues of NFTs? So many, so many legal issues. Look, it's a really interesting space. It's a really exciting space. I think look, it's got a lot of potential, but we're not quite there in terms of it, uh, in terms of, uh, I think, it living up to its hype long term, the current hype long term. You know, the hype that we're experiencing at the moment is because of the amounts of money that these works are selling for, pure and simple. You know, NFTs have been around for quite a few years and actually, actually, there's a nice kind of legal connection here because they actually started off, this technology started being used to, there's a link with certificates of authenticity too, and that they started to be used as a way of or in relation to digital signatures and to kind of proving the authenticity of digital signatures. So they weren't kind of used in relation to images as such when they were first created. That's not what it was about. But it was really about kind of linking, you know, or, or kind of trying to have these digital signatures have a kind of a permanent, permanent form by linking them to to the block to the blockchain. A digital certificate of authenticity. Yeah, but so well, so NFTs have been around for a while. Artists have been playing around with NFTs since about, you know, I'd say like 2015, 2016. And you, you probably would have might have heard of like crypto kitties and now we're seeing like crypto punks being resold now by major auction houses and things like that. So so those those are some of the early NFT projects. I think they have a lot of potential in in terms of when it comes down to it, proof of authorship, proof of proof of ownership and you know especially the kind of potential for it to provide kind of I guess autumn an automated form guaranteeing that an artist is paid like uh, that is a really important development I mean even to this day so many artists struggle to get paid by their galleries when galleries have sold their work it's it's a it's a systemic problem worldwide and so the fact that through this technology an artist can you know sell something and automatically get paid that that is in itself like quite miraculous compared to what what happens i think with many not all certainly not all but you know many artist gallery relationships day to day i also love in the nfts that they've included a thing that you can choose as the creator of it uh how much you receive uh when resale so like if there you know, you can choose like 5%, 10%, whatever so that it when somebody then resells it to somebody else the artist actually gets a percentage of that versus if you make a painting and you sell it through a gallery you only get paid once and then when they resell it at auction or even just resell it for a profit the artist gets none of that. Yes, yeah, so I mean and and that that is like a big part of the marketing spiel of these NFT platforms that they you know they build in this royalty and yes in principle it's great but if you look at how they build it in, that's not a, and I don't want to get into the technical side of things here, but that's not an on-chain element of these arrangements. It's not part of the smart contracts. That, that royalty payment is not automatic. It's actually dependent on the specific platform. So I think for artists, you know, I, I do think they have to do their homework 
and really look into, you know, where they want to mint their works, what they want to mint, where's the appropriate place or space or platform for them because they all offer different things. There's no kind of, there's not many standards yet. I started to do some research because over my lifetime, I've made lots of what I would sort of call like fun little digital projects that I never thought were sort of gallery projects. Mm. You know, they're not like finished art things, but I have decades of small little digital projects that with thousands and thousands of images that I could easily make into NFTs. But when I started researching it, and maybe I was just researching the wrong places, but it seemed like it was somewhere between like $17 US dollars to up to $72 for me to just sort of put the image into and have it created as an NFT. Well, I mean, if I'm going to do that, I've got like 10,000 images, but I don't have $720,000 or $72,000. Math isn't my strong point, but I don't have that kind of money to like put it up front. And this is where I'm having a little bit of an issue with NFTs because the idea of making money from it, we need, there's a two part thing. The artists are then relied on that. We have to basically put money up front with the hope and prayer that somebody will want to buy our NFTs. That's Mm -hmm. one problem I have with it. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the other problem is that I feel like a lot of the NFTs that I've seen out there that people are talking about, that are being, you know, having lots of visibility, fall back on again sort of social media cult of personality kind of thing so if you're good with social media and people know your name then you're going to do well with that process but if you're just some young artist who's trying to make you know a million dollars selling an nft it's probably not going to work because you also have to have that social media profile you also have to have that cult of personality sort of name recognition in order to get those basically earn your money back even uh, from that that creation of these NFTs. Yeah, agree. There is a lot more that 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 it takes than just putting up, you know, minting your NFT and putting it on the website. Absolutely, and you know, I've seen on on I don't know if you are on Clubhouse, but you know, there's always these like NFT drops, these NFT parties. It's like this whole kind of culture that's emerging, which I find quite interesting. There's a lot of positivity around these NFTs, but not much kind of like engagement with like thinking about, well, what is it that I'm, you know, when I, if I'm using this platform, like what am I signing up to here? Like what, what do I actually get out of the process? And like you say, like, well, how much is it actually going to cost me? I mean, all of the platforms, they do charge a commission, not necessarily when you mint and sell on the first sale. Some of them are, I guess, pretty decent in that they only actually charge a commission on the secondary sale on their platform. But these commission percentages vary significantly from platform to platform. So I've seen commissions percentages from like, you know, 5% of the sale, which I think, you know, is pretty reasonable to 33%, which also comes back to the question of, well, you know, then, then what are these platforms doing? Like, you know, in, in a way, they're just becoming substitute galleries for the real thing. That, that are just becoming, you know, these kind of intermediary platforms and, you know, the whole principle behind NFTs and blockchain technology and it being decentralized and stuff is that you, you eliminate the middleman. You don't need the middleman. But, you know, here, you know, this whole NFT culture relies on these platforms. Yes, agreed. I mean, it, it's difficult because in some ways these new technologies are ways that artists are trying to connect better or sort of smoother or more directly with their supporters and their collectors but it's just another barrier to that connection yeah uh, well it's like it's 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 a middleman 
it is a middleman. So, you know, look, there are some amazing artists there that like have the the tech know-how to actually, you know, build their own platforms and do it themselves, but most artists don't. And they, they rely on these platforms to support them. So, you know, I think there's also a kind of a, you know, we have to think about, well, what's the responsibility of these platforms? And, you know, at the moment, the way that, and I've gone through the, you know, very interesting, <laughs> but, I don't know, I found it an interesting process, but the, the process of actually reading through the website terms and conditions for all of the kind of the, the main platforms, you know, your open season, your nifty gateway and your rareable and your super rare and your foundation and all of them, and really kind of going through with a fine-tooth comb to understand, you know, what 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 the artist is going to be held accountable for and what the platform is going to be held accountable for. And, you know, no surprises there, but, you know, most of the responsibility sits with the artist. And that's my big pet peeve is in the general, these days, I feel like a lot of the things that traditionally were done by either the curators or the gallerists or the, even the collectors or the institutions, the responsibilities are falling back to the artists, both financially as well as legally. And we don't need more work. We we want things to go easier, but everything's being handed back to us. Like, you know, yeah. Kickstarter, Indiegogo, even social media. Like, we're having to take on more roles to be practicing artists when reality, these technologies were meant to be designed to make it easier on us. But exactly. I feel like it's making it harder on us. I do. And I think that's, you know, I think that's also because a lot of them have been sort of rushed through and they haven't done their homework and they haven't got lawyers involved at, you know, the at point A. They've probably got lawyers involved at point, you know, X or Y or Z. But by that point, you know, when you've actually built the, the structure, the platform structure, it's very hard to then navigate through all the legal issues. So I think what's great at the moment, and so a lot of the interesting work I'm doing at the moment is working with some of the newer platforms that are launching you know, uh, in in the next few months who are very conscious of these issues and do want to do a better job at supporting the users of their websites. They want, that they're, they're eager to take more of this kind of best practice approach. So, so there is promise, but I think we sort of need to get through this period and keep on trying to improve, improve what's happening. I mean, based on what you're saying, I feel like basically these people who made these platforms are business people that are just using artists to make money. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, you could say, well, would they be involved if they weren't going to make any money? I mean, probably not. So, you know, that's an important part of what they're doing. I mean, the hard part is, is like they're to a certain extent, some, some of them, and I'm not saying all of them, I feel like are a bit of taking advantage because they could just as easily, if they're business people, they could make a new thing. They could do their own thing, but instead they're sort of making money off of our work as artists. I mean, I don't know if they really think of it in such a conscious way. <laughs> and maybe that's because then a lot of them, you know, are not coming from the art space they're coming from the tech space right so and maybe that's the thing maybe they should like put some more artists on their you know <laughs> committees or their laboratory or their board or whatever yeah. to have have some input on that in order to make sure that not only are they doing a good business model for their business but they're doing a supportive and helpful business model that truly helps artists alleviate some of these difficulties and these concerns that we have with having to keep up with our websites and our social media and our Kickstarters and whatever else we do to try to get support for our artwork. 
I think I think that's a great idea. I, I think that is happening. You know, like the latest role in the art world is to be an NFT advisor. Like every second person is an NFT advisor. <laughs> you know, like I, I agree with you. Like they can learn a lot from artists. Like we all can, right? <laughs> well, but it, it's it's not about it's not about like learning a lot from us. Like I'm not going to be mm. that egotistical. But I'm right. going to say like if they're going to be using our blood sweat and tears that yeah. we should at least be at the table to give our input on how to be beneficial to artists versus just how to make money yeah absolutely absolutely and i think and you know i think also and this comes back to you know when we're talking about contracts and trust you know with these platforms and in a way it's also about social media platforms as well like the longevity of these platforms relies on the trust, the, the the relationship they have with their users and that trust that they build. And they, you know, so without that trust that, you know, no one, they'll just, you know, everyone will just move to another platform. So that's why also I think now a lot of the platforms are kind of scrabbling to sort of improve the way they operate in terms of, I guess, respecting artists' rights and the position of the artist and the role of the artist because they know that their longevity relies relies on that on their reputation i i have no trust in those social media platforms period because <laughs> between instagram and their whole like thing where they could take our copyrights and use it for their own purposes which totally pissed me off but beyond that there's the whole nature of basically this is a platform that we as the users of it are using it for free which means that we're yes. not the customers we're the we're the thing they're selling so correct we're, you, that's yeah so there should be no trust there we shouldn't be trusting them because like yeah. they're literally using us as products that they then sell our habits that's right that's right but you know on that instagram point and that 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 copyright and licensing point the license that a user on instagram gives to instagram is actually very similar to the license that you know the the nft creator gives to the nft platform on most of the most commonly known platforms i should it's very very similar in fact i wouldn't be surprised if on some of these website terms and conditions were created they were actually modeling themselves on the website terms of use of social media platforms as well yeah but that that's just the blind leading the blind really well, I mean, you know. but but but, but then it's like at the end of the day you know artists are signing up again it's like you're as a user you you're giving you're not giving away your rights like you're still retaining those rights but you're giving the platform a very broad permission to use your content but they shouldn't have any right to use our content they're already taking all of our uh, you know, our, our habits and our scrolls and our likes and all that, why should they be taking our yeah. content also? I think, look, from a practical perspective, they do need some <laughs> permission. So, you know, for example, even a permission for the platform to show an image of the work. So because when, when you're displaying the image on the website, you're, you're technically you're reproducing the, the file, the, the work, the image. And you're what we'd call here, at least, I think it's slightly different in the US, but here we call it communicating to the public where you're actually transmitting electronically. That's also like one of the copyright, the, the rights of a copyright holder. So, so from a, you know, they do actually need some rights to be able to 
make the platform looks as it looks and to be able to show, display the the works on the website. But yes, the question is how much you know they're very broad licenses that most of them have. So do they really need all that? Well, I don't know. But at the end of the day, you know they they're protecting their interests. And when you read the website terms and conditions, I think you know most people that you, you'll you'll see that that's that's what they're trying to do through their website terms and conditions. Yeah, it's just a hard balance because like some days I I don't think of this all the time, but some days I sit back and I'm like, fucking Facebook and Instagram, they're making billions of dollars. Well, I know they're the same company, but they're making billions of dollars based on the fact that I'm engaging and putting up my whatever mm. beautiful thing, my my whatever, and I'm getting people to come and look at it. So I'm doing all the work to att attract people to their product and they're making billions of dollars and I'm making nothing off of it, but I'm spending mm. all my time and energy doing it. Mm. So like we're, we're literally working to make them money. Yeah. We're, we're working for, we're working for Facebook. Oh, that's such a sad state yeah. of affairs. All right. <laughs> so let's, let's try to be more positive here. Okay. okay. Um, all right. To wrap this up generally. So like, do you have any additional sort of advice you might give to, anybody in the artistic field that we haven't touched on yet? I wouldn't say this is necessarily advice, but I know that the, the law and, you know, lawyers, a lot of lawyers can seem quite intimidating. And you know what? A lot of lawyers probably are quite intimidating, but there's a lot of potential for the way in which artists can use the law and exploit the law for their benefits and, feel more empowered by the law. There's, you know, I, I think there's, that's the exciting thing that, you know, even with a contract, for example, you do have the ability to, to shape your arrangement in a way that better suits you. So I think that in a way it's just kind of underutilised a lot in the art world. And I think that's a bit of a shame, but I think it's also because there is such a kind of a lack of education around the law and legal rights for artists and I think that that is a big problem. So the responsibility doesn't lie on the artists alone. I think it you know it's everybody's responsibility to to become more self-aware of of their rights and entitlements and what they can do you know what they can do to kind of protect themselves as well. So so that's one thing I would I would say and the other thing is, you know, art lawyers, lawyers who focus on the creative industries, they they are, they should at least. Like they, 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 what they do, what I do is, you know, kind of we wouldn't be able to do what we do unless we kind of understood or at least, you know, yeah, understood the way in which artists think or the needs of artists or the wants of artists or kind of valued what artists do. So there are all different types of lawyers out there and, you know, not, not all of them are assholes <laughs> and not all of them are there to screw you over as well. So it's probably my other piece of life. I resent that. I never once thought that. I'm uh, personally, I'm intimidated by lawyers. No, I'm intimidated by them because yeah. they know so much that I'm just like, I, I like you. Know, you walk into a lawyer's office and you're like, I think this person wronged me, and they they're like, yeah. no, legally they didn't. You're yeah. Like, God yeah. damn it. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I get that. And I think, you know, lawyers can do a better job in kind of recognising that there's all sorts of people out there and all sorts of levels of knowledge. But, you know, it's a kind of a two-way thing. Well, but I also have the, the experiences of like very traditional American attorneys, you know, suits, suits yes. and high power offices and all that kind yeah. of stuff, which very is very adversarial, I should say. Very adversarial. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. One random thing that actually I wanted to ask you about the name of your agency is Guest Work Agency. What, what yeah. does that name mean? It was kind of inspired by the, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a business, but I call it, you know, the practice that was set up by a curator called Harold Zaman. And he's sort of one of those kind of superstar curators of the 20th century. He uh, produced, and I should say in a lot of instances he actually co-produced, but he produced, you know, some of my most iconic exhibitions of all time. And he was really the first freelance curator. He was really the first person to call himself a curator and work outside of a museum or a gallery and to work actually on, you know, with different museums and galleries and artists on a project-to-project basis and so when he set up this practice this agency he called it what's it called it wasn't exactly guest work agency but it was the agency of guest workers kind of roughly translated from from german kind of this you know playing on the idea of the kind of guest worker or the project worker or yeah someone who sort of doesn't have that stability of working within an institution let's say so it's very much inspired by him so it doesn't really have a legal origin, but I never wanted it to have a legal origin either. You know, I didn't want to have a kind of a typical law firm name. I didn't want my website to look like a law firm website. I wanted it to look like an art gallery website. Well, not only that, but you don't call yourself a firm. You call yourself an agency. Yeah, an agency or a practice. Like a lot of lawyers actually refer to their businesses as practices. So I find that quite interesting, you know. I never um, understood that term practice. Artists use that too. Artists practice. It's not practice. Yeah. We're already masterful. We're not practicing <laughs> anymore. We're, we're doing. <laughs> you know, you're learning. You're learning as you go. Yeah. I, I would hope we're we're better than that. I, yeah, I try not to use the term like artist practice because it's not practice. It's doing. That's true. That's true. Yeah, but that's just me. One last question, totally just superficially kind of silly. Your social media, on your Instagram, everything is black and white. <laughs> yes. It, where, how did that come about? It was, <laughs> speaking of copyright and ideas, it wasn't all my own idea. I had this lovely colleague that I worked with and who gave me a little bit of tips and advice on, you know, marketing strategy when I was starting out on Instagram. And we thought, you know, it would be a good idea to have like a point of difference. And I always like the idea of this idea of, you know, the law being black and white and grey. And so it sort of came from from that. I read it, I read it that way. No, that works. Yeah, I should say, you know, I, someday I'm very tempted to do a colour image. But then I sort of, I get too afraid that I'm just going to shift the status quo. <laughs> so I feel like I've been in it for too long and I don't know how to do it any other way. So, so that's kind of how it's come about. But, you know, it's, it's it's an interesting one. Don't think too much about the legal side of filters. We won't go down that, that rabbit hole. Oh, wait, are there legal aspects <laughs> of filters? Well, am I altering the image? 
in a way that, you know, might not be the way in which the image was originally intended to be shown. Well, of course, that's what a filter is. Right, right. But, 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 is it, but if it's not my image and I've just, of course, because I always ask for permission to use the image if it's not my image, but if it's not my image, do I have to sort of only use it in the way in which it was originally shown or can I add a filter? You know, so, but, but when I do ask for permission, I'm very clear, you know, I show a link to the guesswork agency Instagram so they can see how it's going to be used. But see, I overanalyze everything. <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, I'm not sure how productive it is to, to overanalyze things to the extent that I do, but that's just, you know, the way, the way my brain works. I'm perfectly good with overanalyzation. I feel that the majority of society underanalyzes. That's, that, that, that's quite possible, yes. Yeah, I'm on your side. Great. All right. Thank you very much for taking the time. No worries. That was, that was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>